good to see you all again uh, for part two. And uh, we, I think, pretty much stuck to the main point that I'd hoped to focus on last week, which is simply in what is interiorized monasticism, and in particular, how it ties to our understanding of Christianity being an ascetical religion. And if you remember that ascesis simply means the exercise of one's faith that our faith life is not something that's lived out only in our head, but we are called to express it through our words and our deeds. And in particular for the Desert Fathers, the active life was not act active uh, works of charity for others. Certainly that's part of our faith life, but the active life is really our struggle with our own passions and trying to order our desires, our love, and all of our appetites toward God and towards the things that he desires for us, uh, toward the life of virtue. So the struggle with the passions to grow in virtue, but also to develop uh, what uh, Paul says, a constancy in our pray prayer life life, to pray without ceasing, so to live in constant communion with our God. And our jumping off point really was our understanding of our lives given our baptism, that we are baptized into Christ. And this reality draws us uh, not only into a forgiveness of our sins, but draws us into the very life of the most holy, holy trinity itself that as Christian men and women, we aren't called simply to avoid sin or to be sinless in our day-to-day -day life. We're actually called to something far greater and something far more beautiful, which is the participation in the life of the most holy trinity. The fathers of the church call this deification. This is our destiny and our dignity in Christ Jesus. And so, when we think about living out our faith life, it means that we are to conform ourselves or seek to conform ourselves in every, every way possible to Christ. And we know that we can't do this simply by the strength of our will. It's only by the grace of God that we can become what God has called us to become, sons and daughters of God, heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And to think of interiorized monasticism, uh, we have to remember that the, the monks who went into the desert went there not to create monasticism. They went there not thinking of taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They went there for one reason alone, and it was to be saved, to give themselves over to God in a complete way, to withhold nothing from, from him. So they left everything in the world in order that they might enter into the spiritual desert. Uh, the desert was known for being a place where the demons existed. And so they would go there to engage in a spiritual battle, uh, not with the world, but the, the battle that lies within and to struggle with the demons that rest there. So to struggle with the passions, to overcome the things that lead us into sin, to learn how the, the demons will use their kind of trickery to draw us away from the path of God, even use things virtuous to draw us on a path that leads away from the Lord and his commandments. And so they went to the desert to engage in this kind of spiritual battle. Prior to that, the church, as you know, had been persecuted for the first three centuries. And so to proclaim one's faith was basically to sign one's own death warrant. 
uh, to bear witness to Christ publicly would mean to be put to death by the prevailing culture, the prevailing authorities. And so when this shifted with the rise of Constantine and Christianity became the accepted religion of the culture, it wasn't long after that that we began to see a movement towards lukewarmness in the faith. And it was this reason that the monks went out into the desert that they wanted to engage in a spiritual battle where they, where they no longer face this in the culture. They would now undergo a white martyrdom where they would seek to die to self and sin and live holy for Christ. And the idea of interiorized monasticism is not rooted in the thought that we would go all go to the deserts of Egypt or Palestine and embrace the kind of life that they embraced. Rather, it's embracing the wisdom that uh, uh, came as a fruit of their spiritual struggle. What is it to, to be a human being now in light of the incarnation, the fact that God took our flesh upon himself? What is our dignity and destiny in him? What are the things that we struggle with in the spiritual life? The main sins that become deeply rooted or become passions for us, habitual. How do we overcome them? How did the fathers define them? What were the remedies that they learned about in their struggle with them? How does one learn how to pray? And again, not pray in an episodic fashion every once in a while, but to pray as those who are living in constant communion with God, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, that we are temples of God the Most High, and who receive the very body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ within us every time we receive Holy Communion. And we hear God's word, not only in the proclamation of the gospel at liturgy, or when we read about it, but when we receive Holy Communion, we receive that word into our, ourselves in the most intimate fashion. So we not only hear it audibly, but it becomes deeply rooted within our hearts. And it's there that that spirit of truth that dwells within us guides us in to all truth. We are, are drawn in and through faith to comprehend the things of God, the things that go beyond reason and intellect, imagination and understanding. So these are all the things that we, we learn from the Desert Fathers, and it's this spirituality that has perpetuated itself, especially among Eastern Christians throughout all the centuries. There's a beautiful kind of homogeneity that we see in the spiritual tradition, passed on from century to century. We see the same anthropology, the same understanding of what it is to be a human being, the same psychology. What are the particular struggles that we have on an intellectual and emotional level in the spiritual life. And then a similar spirituality, how it is that we struggle with these passions and how it is that we foster virtue and how it is that we pray. And so the, there is a, a beauty of this spiritual tradition that I think is unlike anything else and that can be something that can revitalize the life of the church. We live in a time where there have been a couple of generations now that have not been formed in the faith. For years, I worked in campus ministry at the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon as a Latin Rite priest. And when I started, we could assume that there was about uh, a junior high school level of religious education, or that it would, 
take them up through when they were confirmed. And then typically their religious education seemed to cease at that point. Now it is even less than that. Oftentimes you're fortunate if somebody has been baptized. And a lot of families will baptize their, their children simply to celebrate the, f the fact that the child was born. But formation in the faith or the embrace of that reality of what baptism has made possible for them often ceases at that point. And uh, I worked at a place called the Newman Center at the turn of the 20th century uh, on secular universities. Newman Centers were created. Newman was a great convert to Catholicism in the 19th century, one of the most brilliant theologians and histories of that particular century. And so they decided to name these Catholic centers at secular universities after him. And again, when I first came to school, most Catholics knew exactly what a Newman Center was, and their parents had accepted it, or had experienced it. Now, when the students come to the university, they say, what is a Newman Catholic? What is a Newman Catholic? And our building was called the Ryan Catholic Newman Center. And so they wanted to know what Ryan Catholics were, or who Ryan Catholics were. And so any sense of this, the kind of continuity in history as, and practice as Catholics has diminished greatly over the last 20 to 25 years. And with that, I've seen not only a lack of formation in the sense of catechesis, of knowing what one's faith teaches, but a lack of formation. How is it that we live out our faith in a day-to-day -day basis? And how is it that we live it out in a culture that is completely an antithetical to it? Where there's a kind of hostility now, an open hostility to religion in general, but in particular to Catholicism. How do we prepare young men and women to engage the world around them? But more importantly, how do we show them to embrace that dignity and the joy and the hope and the promise that it brings to them? More often than not, uh, religion seems to be something that is confining or that keeps them from pursuing the things that they would enjoy in life rather than something that brings us freedom and happiness and allows us to see exactly what it is to be a human being, what it is to love and to give ourselves in love to others, not only God. And so I think the Eastern rites of the church are in particular poised to offer something that is essentially essential to the life as a whole. I think I mentioned last time that Newman had said that sometimes the auxiliary uh, groups of a of military of an army can turn the tide of a battle. So they might be very small, a small group of men, but they can come in at exactly the right time and turn the tide. And I, I mentioned the last time, of the 1.4 billion Catholics there are throughout the world, that the, all the Eastern Rites together make up, I think it's 0.5% of that number. So very small, and yet they are our connection to what is, in my mind, the most powerful thing of our spiritual tradition, what is most transformative and allows us with a clarity to understand what praxis is and how important it is, what it is to practice 
our Christian faith on a day-to-day -day basis and from moment to moment. And so it was for this reason that I put together this talk on interiorized monasticism. I've been thinking about it for 30 years, and so I'm experimenting with all of you and giving it for the, the first time. But about a thousand people have listened to the podcast of this, so we're, we're joined by a lot of good, good people who have, have the same interest and the same desire. And so last time we focused upon this interiorized monasticism, especially as it's tied to asceticism, uh, the, the ordering of our desires, the disciplining of ourselves in the spiritual life, and also in particular to our baptism. What we become at that moment as infants when we are given this extraordinary gift by God. And if you remember, and well, I'll use this as my leaping off point for tonight's talk, that Jesus, when talking about his cousin, John the Baptist said, among all those born of women, John is the greatest of them all. So of all, all those who are born women, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist. But he goes on from there to say, but even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. So a moment that a child is baptized, one becomes an heir to the kingdom. One is drawn into the fullness of the life of Christ, and so also into the fullness of the life of the Trinity and has access to all the treasure house of graces that flow from that reality. And so a child, an infant, infons, if you remember, means one who is speechless, without words. A, a little infant becomes greater than the greatest of all prophets who prepared the way for the coming of the Lord himself. And it's this that we have to keep in mind, our true dignity as Christian men and women and what it means to embrace that fully. And the, the fathers of the desert went to the desert for that purpose only, that nothing would constrain them from embracing the gift that has been given to them in God through Christ, least of all themselves and their own ego, their own desires, or the world around them, even within the life of the church that was already beginning to experience a certain amount of corruption and nobody has to tell our generation about that, what that looks like and what it does to the church. The only way that the church can be renewed is by the mercy and the grace of God himself and our opening ourselves up to his grace, the same grace that we receive in and through our baptism and embrace that dignity once again. And this is the path that the Desert Fathers show us. And tonight, I want to speak with you about five fundamental elements of what this interior monasticism looks like. And I've been using, if you remember, uh, an Eastern theologian and priest named Paul Evdekimov. If you ever have the opportunity to read his, his writings, they're extraordinary. The, the book, book in particular that, I'm, uh, that I've gained most of the information from is called uh, Stages of the Spiritual Life, or it was originally titled The Struggle with God. And it's extraordinary in every way. And so if you have one book in your library, this would be a, a good one to have. And so he gives us five fundamental elements. And the first perhaps seems obvious, but it's the most important, and that is prayer itself. That we are called to live in constant intimacy and communion with God. This is what now what has been made possible for us. 
that it is not simply all of us embracing a discipline of saying certain prayers throughout the course of a day, that we have been given something extraordinary, that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within our hearts, the spirit that searches the very depths of God, the scriptures tell us, but also that search our depths, that searches our depths, a spirit that cries out to God with groans beyond words, uh, a groan of love, if you will. And that spirit dwells within us and all of our prayers, as poor, as simple as they might be, even if we simply cry out from our, God, from our heart to God, help, is elevated, is lifted up by that spirit that dwells within us. And beyond that, we also receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord in the Holy Eucharist. And so at that moment, we are united to the Son himself. And his virtue becomes our virtue. His strength becomes our strength. So we're not just called to become good people. This is not what Christianity is about. We are called to become Christ for the world. And our Lord tells us even more than that. Be perfect, if you remember from last time. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. This is now your dignity, not simply to be good people. You have not simply been freed from the burden and the shackle of your sins, but you've been elevated to participate in the very life of God. And that means that you seek to remove every impediment to that union and communion and to live in that union constantly. You remember Paul says, pray without ceasing. And we often treat that as if it were, was a hyperbole. That Paul is just saying, you should pray a lot and often. Whereas in reality, what Paul is saying here is literal truth for us. Pray without ceasing. There is to be a movement from the mind into the heart and from the heart to God continuously. And what we see in the fathers in particular is this gravitation towards these very short prayers called arrow prayers. Most of you are probably familiar with the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they would say this almost with every breath that they would have. And they're called arrow prayers because in their brevity, they pierce the heavens. It only takes an instant of a moment. Uh, there's one uh, writer in the Western tradition, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing, he says it only takes an atom of a moment, a fraction of a moment to turn the mind and the heart to God. So the, the moment that we are moved by love to turn toward God, we are instantly brought into communion with him. And so what Paul is telling us is not beyond reach. In fact, it's been made eminently possible for us because of everything that God has given to us. It's simply allowing ourselves to trust in that reality and begin to practice it within our day-to-day -day life. Uh, I just finished a little book by St. Theophan the Recluse, and he was writing to a young woman named Anastasia, and she writes to him for spiritual direction. 
and she simply tells him, I want to embrace my full dignity as a Christian woman. She was 18 years old when she wrote, wrote him this. Had no designs on becoming a religious, simply wanted to live Christianity out fully. And so he begins this correspondence with her. If you've never had the opportunity to read it, it's exquisite and very intimate and beautiful. He has a wonderful sense of humor, and you see there's a depth of love that he has for her that grows over the course of time. But at one point in the work, he tells her about the Jesus prayer, and he says, if you are not praying it, begin now, at this moment. And so the most important thing that I could say to you is if you're not praying the Jesus prayer every single day of your life, from moment to moment, begin now. And this is how it becomes something that is habitual for us. We need to begin to develop a habit of virtue, a habit of love for God, and a habit of prayer. When we were talking about asceticism the last time, uh, we focused in on those who have a particular love for something within this world and that they would give themselves over to completely. So the athlete from a very young age takes up a particular sport. He joins a team, he studies plays, he lifts weights, he grows in that sport throughout the years and gives himself over to it more and more. Or better, a musician or an artist takes up a craft or takes up an instrument, studies theory, takes lessons from a master, someone who has an experiential knowledge in that field, practice throughout the decades of their life until they master that instrument, all because they love it. They're willing to sacrifice anything. Athletes will change their diet radically, and we admire them. We think, wow, look at that. And they, they lift weights, they push themselves physically to the limit, and we grouse about fasting. And we look at the stadiums full on a Sunday, uh, I think I mentioned last time, uh, Penn State, they had to build onto their stadium and they'll have like 100,000 screaming fans there. And we, we neglect to understand that the word fan comes from fanatic. And yet when we use that about sports fans, there's something that seems normal to us about that. But when we speak about a Christian who goes to daily mass, or regularly to liturgy, or to frequent confession, who prays the Jesus prayer constantly, who prays the hours of the church. We think of them as being extreme, of religious fanatics, of going too far. Even in my own vocation, when I became Catholic, that was fine. When I started thinking about the priesthood, all of a sudden, my parents' anxiety level went up to here partly not having grandchildren, but also I think fearing that I would not be happy or that I was, somebody had influenced me in a negative way and had drawn me in too deeply. It's okay to be religious. It's not all right to have it be something that shapes the very fabric of your life and your identity. But this is what it should be for us. And this is what the De Desert Fathers understood. They pushed themselves, they sacrificed everything, not as a test of endurance, not because they had a negative anthropology, because they hated what it was to be a human being, but because they wanted no impediment to get between themselves and this reality, the fullness of the love of God.
And so Rev. Dukimov lays out these five elements for us, prayer. And he, he says in this ages of the spiritual life, the essence of the state of prayer is simply to be there, to hear the presence of another person of Christ and also of our fellow man in whom Christ challenges me. The perfect prayer seeks the presence of Christ and recognizes him in every human being. Already here, we see in Evdekimov's thought that there is no such thing as an individual Christian. We do not live out our faith in isolation. So we enter into this relationship with God in order that we might be swept up in that love. But being swept up in that love then should make us look at the other, even those who are irritating to us, even those who have hurt us, with, through the same lens that Christ looks at us, with love, with humility, with mercy. And so to draw close to God in prayer is also to draw close to one another. If we live in a culture where we feel more and more isolated, where aggression is rampant, where we, we see the culture itself falling apart, this is part of the reason we've lost sight of the other person and the dignity of the other person. I remember watching not too long in, on the news somebody trying to hijack a car of a guy who was delivering food to make some extra money and the guy took off down the road and as he was driving down the road the person hanging out the window whipped the wheel and it flipped the car over multiple times and the driver was thrown out onto the sidewalk and killed. And the person who did this, one of the person, one of the people who did this cried out, oh my gosh, my phone is in the car. That here is a human being lying dead on the sidewalk and the one concern that she had was that her phone was now inaccessible to her. And we can't fool ourselves to think that we are incapable of that. When we see something like this happen within the culture, we have to think, there but the grace of God go I. By sin, we are capable of the worst. By grace, we are capable of the best. But we can live under no illusions that outside of the grace of God, that we can live a good and holy life, let alone a godly life. Even more strongly, Evdekimov describes prayer in this way. It is not enough to say prayers. We must become, be prayer, prayer incarnate. All of life, each act, every gesture, even the smile of the human face must become a hymn of adoration, an offering, a prayer. One should offer not what one has, but what one is. So he takes it a step further. Prayer is not an action. It's not something that we do as a discipline. It is who we are. It's our identity. We are to become prayer incarnate. Every breath that we take, every gesture that we have as a human being, everything that we do at work, every conversation that we have with another person should be imbued with the love of God and arise out of that relationship with him.
And it's only by doing what St. Paul tells us and what the Desert Fathers counsel us to do is to be living in this constant communion where there is this movement between the mind and the heart to God, a constant communion. There's a kind of liturgy, if you will, that ex exists within us. And it is the Jesus prayer that guides us. What we celebrate on Sunday, what takes place there, this movement of us as a body toward our God and a common adoration and praise is what should take place at every single moment within our own hearts. It's the Holy Spirit within us. And so in crying out the Jesus prayer, there is this movement within us of praise and adoration that should never cease. And again, that might seem unfathomable to us. And I think this is why Theophan the Recluse tells this young Anastasia, begin now, not tomorrow. Don't shelve the inspiration and tell yourself, I'm going to start dedicating an hour of prayer tomorrow, because I can guarantee you, you won't. If we miss that moment of inspiration, when God calls us to prayer, we can't be guaranteed that it's going to come around tomorrow back to us. There will be something else that distracts us. We will feel ill. We'll have great responsibilities at work. Somebody will want us to do something for them. And then we will begin rationalizing, telling ourselves we have other things in our life. We can't possibly be called to this kind of prayer. Maybe that's for monks or nuns living in the desert. But this couldn't possibly be true for me living in my world, in my family, with my children, and my job that I could possibly think that I would live in constant communion with my God. But it's a lie. And it's a lie that the evil one tells us, that this is beyond you, that this is incapable, that you are second-tier Christians, that these monks and nuns who live this life of deep prayer, who seek to give themselves over to the love of God, they're living the ascetic life, and that's for them. And we have to be satisfied with the mundane. We have the responsibilities of day-to-day -day life to take care of ourselves, to take care of those who are our responsibility. How could this be true for us? Well, this is, again, part and parcel of our identity that's rooted in our baptism. This is the gift that God has given to you, not to be second-tier Christians or to have your faith life out at the margins when the culture tells you or where life tells you, okay, you could sit down and pray now for 10 minutes. I never had a coach in all my life tell, say, okay, guys, we're gonna start out with practice for 15 minutes a day, and then we'll, we'll move up over the next couple years. We did triple sessions, all for football. It was nuts. <laughs> and yet when it comes to the idea of praying, of entering into the relationship that endures unto eternity, somehow it seems unfathomable to us that we would have our life be shaped and directed around that reality. Now, to be honest with you, and this is for priests as well, you know, Father Val and I are secular priests. We, we live in the world. We're not religious priests, and so we have an active ministry, certain demands upon us. And so what he's saying here about laity, about those living in the world, living in secular society, he's saying to us as well. You know, as a young priest, 
You know, it was often a fear or anxiety that I, I'd have, that I'd get up in the pulpit and I'd have nothing to say. And so the thought is, I'll work harder. And so I'll, I'll scan every commentary I can get my hands on and try to find the words then to get up in the pulpit so I don't make a fool out of myself. And so the, the dangerous habit that exists there, though, is that you gravitate to your office to begin work earlier and earlier, and you walk right by the chapel. And you think, this makes no sense whatsoever. I'm walking past he who is the word of God made flesh, the one alone who can reveal to me the meaning and the heart of the gospel. And not only that, but the word that he desires to speak to my heart and to everyone in that congregation, I'll walk right past him in order to go to some commentary to try to find something desperately to say that sounds interesting. I remember my spiritual director saying, what do you think will happen if you don't do that, if you simply pray? And I said, well, I'll, I'll get up there and I won't have anything to say and I'll be silent. And he said, then what? You'll be humbled. And maybe, maybe that's more important, that your heart will be humbled before that entire congregation, that you get up there and you are struck silent and you have nothing to say. And maybe that humility teaches you, you need to rely upon the grace of God more. But what value is it to everybody in the congregation or to you to have it all in the mind, notional, but nowhere near the heart? It's only prayer that is going to allow that word to take root in us and, and be something that produces something that is pleasing in the eyes of God. So, the example of this is the Jesus prayer. This is how we get there. And this prayer, he tells us, of the heart frees and enlarges the heart and attracts Jesus to it. When Jesus is drawn into the heart, the liturgy becomes interiorized and the kingdom is established in the peaceful soul. The name dwells in us as its temple and there the divine presence transmutes and Christifies us. The presence of God that is attracted to us when we call upon the name of Jesus that is like un unlike any other name. Mary and Joseph did not give him the name. The name was given to him by his heavenly father. You will call him Jesus. And this name has a kind of sacramental power to it. It's transformative. And in saying it, in articulating it, Evdekimov is telling us we become what we articulate and we become what we receive. So in praying the Jesus prayer and calling out on the name of the Lord, we are transformed by the grace of God. It immediately attracts God to us and to our hearts, and we become even more temples of the Holy Spirit at that moment. When he speaks of it here as interiorized liturgy, and if you write this down, this would be a good thing to hold on to, because what he says is that our time spent outside of liturgy, and I've heard many saints say this, is more important than the time spent in liturgy. I know that sounds funny, but we might spend a couple of hours in divine liturgy, 
But we cannot abstract that from a living relationship with God. If we are called to be praying at every moment of our life and the grace that we receive from the divine liturgy is to bear fruit in us, both in the way that we live our life, but also the way that we pray, then that time before we celebrate the divine liturgy and after can be the most essential. We prepare our minds and our hearts to receive this extraordinary gift and then through our prayer life, we take hold of the grace of God in order that we might live out the gospel fully in our day-to-day -day lives. And it's an extraordinary thing that God has called us to. But so often we've turned it into an exterior action. And like so many things in our spiritual life, it gets pushed out into the margins. The most dangerous thing is when prayer shows up on our checklist for the day. If you're obsessive compulsive, like I am, or anyone who has worked hard in their life, you probably do that. You prioritize your duties. And if we have prayer as part of that, as equal, on equal footing with every other thing that we do throughout the course of the day, we're in trouble. Because it's already, we're telling ourselves that this is one duty among others. This is one task among others, rather than it being life, rather than it being love for us. What we love is going to captivate and capture our minds, our imagination, everything. When we begin to pray in, in, in the face of all the distractions of life or in the face of all the temptations that might be coming to us, we have up to 40,000 thoughts in a given day. As all those thoughts are jumping up and down in front of us looking for our attention, we have to keep our eyes on the beloved. It's as if we're, we walk into a crowded room and everybody's talking. If you've ever been like that at a party, it's like you're in a room full of geese. Wah, 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 wah. Everybody's talking at the same time. And our prayer has to be so deeply rooted in our hearts. It's like it takes us immediately to the bridegroom who see, we see across the room. Our hearts immediately go to him in an undistracted fashion. This is what we want to see it see emerge. And so the, our prayer should be, may it be so. God, make this so in my day-to-day -day life. If you give me anything, if you give me any gift, let this be the one. In fact, our Lenten fast and every ascetic effort is all about this, the strengthening of our hearts to draw us close, closer to God. And if we're doing it for any other reason, it's not going to bear fruit in our day-to-day -day life, no matter how much energy we expend on it. If you give up Oreos for Lent, it's not gonna do much, I'm sorry. <laughs> Except probably increase your craving for Oreos when, when Lent is over. Okay, so prayer. That's the, the first element. The other is something a little bit more complicated. If you look at the handout, we talked about this the last time, and the only thing that makes it complicated is the, is the word itself, eschatological maximalism. And so we talked about the eschaton being about the last things, uh, uh, heaven, hell, death, judgment, the end times. And we have a tendency to push that off to some distant unknown future. 
or when we die, that we will come before God and have to give an account for our lives. But when we think of it in these terms, we lose something that is precious to us. Not only do we lose sight of the reality, but we lose sight of that sense of urgency that is so important for the spiritual life. The end times are now. We are in the end times, and we have to have that clearly within our minds. When our Lord becomes incarnate, when God reveals himself in an unparalleled, distinctive, and absolutely unique way in his only begotten son, he's revealed everything to us, and he's given his, what is most precious to us. He's nothing greater to give us than the perfect love of his son. And it is this that we are to be responding to now in this moment, not with an eye to the future. Because if we have an eye to the future, we're always going to put off the present moment. So if we're looking to the past with regret or looking to the future with fear, we're hobbled. If we're living in the present with a sense of urgency, we understand we understand very clearly that every moment is freighted with destiny because every single moment for us is an opportunity to love or to give ourselves in love or it's an opportunity that we've missed, that we let pass us by. And because we are human beings and our life is so brief, there's no going back to that moment. So the most important time for us is now as Christian men and women. We can't let a moment go by when we do not think of God. In the course of this talk, I've been praying desperately <laughs> at times the Jesus prayer, simply for the strength that is needed to say not what I want to say or what's on my mind, but what needs to be said in this moment not to let anxiety or concern or fatigue distract me from God or from trusting in the grace that he offers us. And this is how we are to be living our lives. And there's a curious thing that we find in the gospel, and this may make us a little uncomfortable. We're not expecting or looking forward simply to the second coming of Christ. But he says this understanding of the end being now brings a kind of energy to the moment, and he calls it violence. And it's this that we have to take hold of again in our spiritual life. And all of you are familiar with it. You've heard it before many times in hearing the gospel. We are called to conquer the kingdom itself and bring a transformation to our world, and more importantly, the world within us. And so we hear our Lord say, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent bear it away. There are times in our life that we have to do violence to ourselves in order to embrace that which is good, and that which comes to us from the hand of God. And so let your mind wander back again to the scriptures, where Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to, to, you to sin, I sounded like a Pittsburgher then, there. If your eye causes yins to sin, <laughs> if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Better to enter into to heaven with one hand or one eye than into hell with both. 
And so there are things in our life that lead us into sin. They might even be benign in and of themselves, but because of how we take hold of them and because of how we use them, they become a source of temptation for us. The easy example here, and we talked a little bit about this the last time, is the internet. And in particular, uh, pornography in our day and age. Again, not too many years ago, I'd say a decade ago, uh, the average age for a young boy using internet pornography was 13. That number has gone down to eight years old. So eight years old, the average young boy is being exposed to something that is not static, that is a video, and that forms the, emotion, the imagination and the memory, lodges in the memory, and always then from that moment forward becomes a source of temptation. Memory is a very powerful thing. If we've ever experienced abuse or insult in our life, we've been wounded by somebody, sometimes there are things that will, be that will happen in our life that will trigger that memory, that pain for us, and our minds go immediately there. I mentioned last time that Freud said, in the unconscious, there's no sense of time. And so it only takes something to trigger that, for it immediately to come forward out of the depths of our unconscious or our memory. And so if you think of a little boy who's exposed to this from age eight on, and he's in his now 30s, 40s, 50s, even 70s or 80s, I've talked to men and women who have been struggling with this and are drawn back to it even though they hate it. They despise it, it leads them to experience of shame, and it distorts their relationship with God. They have a hard time believing that God could love them because they are drawn back to something that has become absolutely repulsive to them, but now has become an addiction. The fathers of the desert call this a passion, and passions are simply those sins that have become habitual for us, so deeply rooted. And you all know when uh, a tree is a sapling, you could grab it and rip it out by the roots, no problem. But once it's been growing for 20, 30 years, you could wrap your arms around it, you could wrap trucks around it, and you can't get it out of the ground. And the same thing can be true with these sins that have become passions. And so Jesus speaks of, and the saints speak of, this kind of holy violence, if you will, a willingness to do what is necessary to hold on to what is precious. And if we think about it in our life, if you think about taking care of one of your children or protecting one of your children, one of your offspring, you would do anything. You would lay down your life in order to protect them. And the offspring that we produce in faith, if you will, is our, our virtue. By the grace of God, we are to be able to be conformed to Christ, and we are able to participate in his redemptive work. Everything that we suffer, everything that we endure, now is drawn into the Paschal mystery. When we receive the Holy Eucharist, it's not only that we're strengthened by his grace, but we're drawn into his life in such a radical way that there is now no longer any suffering that we endure alone. He's already there and it participates in his redemptive work in the world. And so if we understood this, 
we would fight, we would do everything we could possibly do in our prayer life, in our ascetic life, to struggle with temptation, to turn away from sin and turn toward God. And so you hear all these stories. And to some of us, they're sort of repulsive of, you know, these saints who fasted in order to humble the mind and the body, who would pray into the night. When I, I visited Egypt, there was one room where a monk would tie, he had long hair, and he would tie his hair to a chain in the ceiling. So if he fell asleep and his head nodded, it would yank his hair awake, and, and so that he could continue his prayer. But for him, prayer was the most beautiful and important thing in the world. So eschatological maximalism. We want to live in the moment, to seize the moment, and to take hold of the grace that God has given to us, because it never, that moment never comes to us again. And with that, we'll take our little break to go to the dessert table. <laughs> Okay, folks, why don't we pick up with the final little section of our talk tonight, which shouldn't take us too long, although I've said that many times before. So if you look at the handout, the, the last element that uh, he's going to be speaking about, and there are actually three parts to it, and we'll do the, the last two next week, uh, but it would be the evangelical councils of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And we have to remind ourselves that these are evangelical councils, that they arise for us out of the gospel. We're shown these things by Christ himself. It's only uh, much later in time that they become codified and they become something that religious embrace as vows. And so when we think of poverty, chastity, and obedience, again, we think of nuns or monks who've have vowed themselves to this particular way of life. When in reality, we are to interiorize these as well that again, arise out of our participation in the life of Christ and so it's looking to him and how he lived out his life as a, as a human being and what we find him uh, saying and doing in the face of the temptations that often come to us in the world where there is a kind of uh, ascendancy of the material or of pow worldly power or of the carnal how did Christ himself respond to this? And one of the most powerful things about Evdekimov is that he helps us view these through the temptations of Christ in the desert. So again, something that's very familiar to us that we've read and meditated upon many times over in the Gospels that brings this into light for us and allows us to see it with great clarity. Uh, the first thing he says though, and I think it's important for us to get it clear in our mind, that these councils are, in, in his words, a charter of freedom. Again, we, we have a tendency to see these things as placing radical limits on the way that we live our life. So poverty, meaning that we can't enjoy the things of this world, or chastity, that we wouldn't have this uh, ability to just give free reign to our sexual desires and appetites, uh, or obedience, that we uh, wouldn't live simply in accord with our own will, 
that we wouldn't be willful individuals simply following uh, our own judgment or opinion on everything that we face throughout this life, that we would seek to imitate Christ in the most concrete way possible uh, in our day-to-day -day life in the manifestation of these three virtues. And again, uh, as I mentioned, he, he sees them through the temptations that Christ experiences after his 40 days in the desert. So Christ goes through a period like us, and this is where we get our 40 days of Lent, where he enters into a great discipline of prayer, but also of fasting. And if you remember, it's when he, he's about to begin his active ministry that then he's tempted uh, by the devil uh, on three different occasions. And the first has to do with, with poverty. And I just want to preface this a, a little bit about the nature of the temptations themselves. I think when we experience temptation, we experience it in our fallen state and our weakness of will and the darkening of our intellect, uh, what has often been termed concupiscence. And so we have a weak will. So even when we see things clearly, okay, this is not something that would be pleasing to God, or this is not something of the kingdom, that even though we see the truth of that, we will not do it. We'll still follow the, the pull of our appetites or our desires. Or even if our will is strong enough, because we have neglected our spiritual life, or we have not you know, studied the scriptures of the fathers, we've failed to pray, we do not see things with a kind of clarity. When we lack purity of heart, we have trouble discerning the truth about certain things in our life, whether it be about relationships or the path that we're going to take forward. And so with a darkened intellect, uh, we can't see the truth sometimes very clearly. And so that will take us down, again, a path that is contrary to the will of God. And similarly, when we think about the temptations that face Christ, uh, we can't think of them, I, said, I should have said contrary to this, we can't think of his temptations in quite the same way. That he did not struggle with things in the way that we do. That we would want to think of them more in terms of what Adam and Eve experienced. That the temptation, if you remember, is directed at their and at his identity. In particular, in their humanity. And so for Adam and Eve, if you remember, they're created to know this profound intimacy with God, that they live in paradise, this radical communion with the Lord. They have no weak will or darkened intellect, but they are tempted. And the way that they are tempted is not through their appetites or through their will, but rather through a sense of identity. So remember the, the, the serpent's temptation to them. Take of the fruit of the tree and eat, eat of it. Then your eyes will be open and you will see the truth. You will know good and evil for yourself and you will become like gods. And they succumb to the illusion of it. They take for themselves, they want to take for themselves a prerogative that belongs to God alone to judge what is good and evil. And so uh, suddenly 
when they seize, try to seize hold of that, they lose the capacity, they who would be gods, lose the capacity to control their own appetites and desire. If you remember, they suddenly realize that they are naked and they, they have to clothe themselves. And then that communion, that radical communion that they shared with God was broken. And they began to fear God rather than to trust and love him. And so they seek, even though it seems ridiculous, they seek to hide themselves from God because of their shame, but also because of their, their disobedience. And from that point on, we, we know the, the fruit of that. We experience it every day of our, our life that weakened will and the darkened intellect. Well, when Christ enters into the desert, he's taken upon himself our humanity in all of its fullness. Again, the temptation is directed towards his self-identity, in particular, his embrace of our humanity. So remember, fully divine, fully human, he embraces, though, our humanity in its fullness, in its poverty. And so the evil one strikes at that identity right from the beginning. So right before he's about to begin his ministry, he begins to attack him. And this is the, the first temptation. He, he comes out of the desert after having fasted for 40 days, probably no meat and probably no milk or cheese, no dairy. Just I was hoping I'd get a little bit of a snicker out of that, but uh, in any case. <laughs> uh, so he comes out and he's hungry, the scriptures tell us. And immediately, the serpent directs the temptation there. Why embrace that humanity in his poverty? Why experience that emptiness within? Cast it off. Change the stones into bread and fill yourself. Manifest your dignity, your, your identity as you tr truly are. And so the, the temptation is directed to this very fundamental appetite uh, and aspect of what it is to be a, a human being, that we rely upon God for everything uh, to sustain us in life, and that includes to sustain us physically and through food and through material goods that keep us safe, that house us. And yet part of our sin is to uh, want to, to make that have the place of God for us, or we elevate it to the place of God. So suddenly material goods become the focus of our energy. We seek to create a kind of fire insurance for us. And so we get health insurance and we put together a uh, retirement fund. And don't go out of here saying, Father David said, get rid of your retirement fund or your health insurance. These things are needed. But so often we, we can enter into this with this sense of not wanting ever to experience a kind of insecurity, instability in our life. We want to be safe and we want to make sure that we've provided it for ourselves. And anything that threatens that becomes a, a personal threat to us. And so often the source of aggression and anger among us as human beings is rooted in our clinging to material goods and clinging to them in such a way that they supplant grace. 
and as being the most valuable thing for us as human beings. And so we cling to the identity that material goods offer us in this world. And so we don't have to take a negative view of, of creation or of the things that we have in our day-to-day -day life and that we use to provide for ourselves and our family. But what we are to do in a measured way is allow the grace of God to shape that for us that we have what is needed and that uh, sustains us from day to day. But we are also cognizant of the fact that we do not live in isolation. This is similar to what we were talking about when we talked about prayer, that when we begin to pray, our, our eyes are open to more and more fully to the love and the presence of God, but our eyes become open also to the other or to the others in our life. And so we are to look at them through the lens of the mercy, the compassion, the generosity of God. And so we are no longer to live simply for ourselves and to protect ourselves. Part, part of our embrace of poverty, or as we hear in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, Christ turns everything on its head in order to communicate this for us. The, the true blessing comes from relying upon what has greater value. Blessed are the poor. They are the ones who rely upon the grace of God, and so they know true wealth in their life. They experience God's constant presence and strength. But this clarity of vision that comes through this poverty of spirit allows them to see others as well. And so to respond with the love that God has shown to us, that he's come to us in our poverty in order to elevate us and lift us up. And so we can no longer use material goods of this world simply to satisfy our own, not just our basic needs, but in abundance. And you can see how we often will lose sight of that. Avarice is one of the most difficult of the capital sins because it feeds upon itself. It is never enough. So we get something and we always want more. It always seems insufficient to us. So when we give ourselves over to this passion that would be contrary to poverty or poverty of spirit, we tend to cling to the things of this world rather than the grace of God. And we need to have more and more to fill that void within us. If God has created us for himself, and we talked about this a little bit in the first talk, that he's created us with a desire for him. And the word desire, if you remember, the root of it is sense of lack, sense of incompleteness, that only God can fill and satisfy for us. And when we turn away from God, we are going to still experience that lack within us. And we are going to try to fill it with anything and everything in this world. And for a short period of time, those worldly goods or whatever it is that has great value to us in this world might satisfy us. But eventually we see the emptiness of it or we'll experience some experience in our life of sickness, near death, or the death of one we love. We experience something of the brevity of our lives in this world, and all of a sudden we have a moment of clarity that all that I've worked so hard for, all that I value, all that I thought had great meaning for me, suddenly has very little meaning. And very quickly after we die, people are going to forget who we are.
It might not be immediately for some of us. Some of that's carried on gener generationally, or because we've done something in this world that has some great meaning or value. People might remember us for a period of time, but with the passing of ages, we are all dust, and any monument to us will be dust. The only thing that we leave this world with is our virtue or our vice. This is only, the only thing that we take with us before the, the judgment seat of God. And those who become our advocates, those who will defend us, will plead our cause, will be the poor of this world. Those to whom we've reached out to in a Christ-like way. So when we see Christ engaging those in the gospel who are forced out to the margins of life, whether it be lepers, if you touched a leper, you were considered excommunicated unclean ritually, so you're cut off from the worshiping community. If you touched a dead body, the same thing was true. And so until you were made ritually clean, you could not enter into the place of worship. We see him with those who were prostitutes, that it was laid down on the law. If somebody was caught in the act of adultery, they were to be stoned to death. And we get a sense from that gospel passage that the men who dragged her into the market square were going to enjoy doing it. They had rock in hand and were ready to fulfill their godly duty to stone her to death. And we see Christ step into the fray and say, he who has not committed a sin, let him cast the first stone. The part of what we have to let go of is the illusion that there is anything that is enduring or that there is anything that has been given to us that does not come to us from the hand of God. And only when we see that do we prevent this ascendancy of the material in our life to the point that it becomes God and we allow things to come back and swing back to where they need to be, the ascendancy of grace. We recognize that we are sustained from moment to moment only by what comes to us from the hand of God. Every breath we take, even the fact that we walk around, that we're held in existence, is all due to the love and the mercy of God. And yet, when we abstract ourselves from that relationship and we push God out to the margins, we begin to live our lives as though we are creating something for ourselves, something that has great value and that our identity gets wrapped up in, into this. Even relationships we have to be careful with as well. We get married. We fall in love. This person we would do anything for we would lay down our life, and that's a good thing. You know, it's a reflection of the love of Christ. But sometimes we can idolize others in, and give them the place of God in our life. And marriage is something that should bind two people together so with even greater strength they are moving toward God so that the prayer of one is naturally going to strengthen the prayer of others because it's not it's of the other because it's not two people praying it's one person praying the two have become one in Christ and so if a husband 
for example, is struggling in his life, is experiencing depression, is not able to see God, is struggling with a particular sin. It could be the strength of his wife's prayer that holds him up from falling into greater darkness or pulls him out of that despondency or that sin altogether. It's been said by some of the saints, if there's one prayer in the family, it elevates the whole family. It strengthens the whole family because of, of the, the, the uniqueness of that bond. And this should be our, our vision, that we rely completely upon God for our, our identity and sustain us. It's no accident that our Lord gave himself to us in a meal, that which is fundamental to us as human beings to sustain us that he not only takes our flesh upon himself and the burden and the weight of our sin, our poverty, death itself, but he nourishes us and he makes himself completely non-threatening to us. Again, think about this, that he who, in and through whom all of creation comes into being, not only makes himself an infant, enters into this world, but in order to give us his love, and in order that we would experience no hesitancy within our heart in approaching him, he makes himself a small piece of bread in order that we might consume him, that nothing would hold us back from receiving what he desires to give us, not only to sustain us, but to raise us up to experience the fullness of life in the kingdom. And so, I wouldn't want the takeaway from this to be that our embrace of poverty and poverty of spirit means that we are not allowed to have material goods. We require them as human beings to sustain us in this life. But we have to make sure that it is the primacy of this relationship with God. Everything that we've been talking about up to this point is shaping the way that we look at that and shaping the way that we use everything within this world. Because otherwise, the evil one will do the same thing that he did to Adam and Eve and that he uh, tried to do with our Lord. Seize it for yourself. Take it as your own. It's your right. You know, enjoy the things of, of this world. Why, why sacrifice? Why experience this emptiness within you? Whereas Christian men and women, instead of seeing that as something that deprives us, we see it as something that draws us to greater fulfillment. And again, let's, let's go back to the practice of fasting. Do I talk about this in the first group at all, a little bit, about what Christ's teaching on fasting is? This, from the time of Christ on, a unique and distinctive kind of fasting begins for us. In the past, it was tied to pre preparation for battle, uh, of repentance for the committing of one's sin, to understanding something from the scriptures. So there were a whole host of reasons that men and women would fast in the past. And King David is a good example of this. When uh, his son is dying because of his adultery, he's, he fasts, hoping that this will change the will of God in that regard. But when Christ comes, and he's asked specifically by the disciples of the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, why do we fast and your disciples do not fast? And Jesus says something interesting 
to the crowds. He says, they have the bridegroom with them. This is not a time for fasting, but rather for feasting. There will come a time when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast. This should really make this period of 40 days a most beautiful thing for us and make us love fasting. Because what Jesus is telling us is that that experience now of that emptiness within that comes through humbling ourselves physically by not eating simply what we want to eat reminds us of he who is the heavenly bridegroom, the bread of life, the one alone who can satisfy the deepest desires and longings of the human heart. This is why we fast. And if we fast, again, for any other reason, out of a sense of endurance or to punish ourselves or even simply out of repentance, we're missing the point that what it's meant to do is to deepen our prayer and deepen the sense of longing within us for he who is the bread of life. That we know and experience, especially at the end of a fast, that our prayer is at its deepest. And this is why the, the church establishes the fast before receiving Holy Communion. It's not only because what we're receiving is something special, it is and unique, but it's also that we might experience on a bodily level what draws us to Christ, desire, hunger, that we might connect the two in our mind uh, as it were, uh, uniquely and irreparably, that we might forever see now in our fasting the face of Christ and the one alone who can satisfy us. And so I think what is said here of fasting, our use of uh, material goods even to feed and nourish ourselves, we would think too of our use of all the material goods of this life, that we would see them as gifts of God and even when we experience want in our life, we would see behind all of our desires, the greater desire for God, what he alone can fulfill. And so surprisingly, we've, we see people both in the East and the West manifest this in a powerful way. Francis of Assisi in the, in the West embraces radical poverty. He casts off everything, even though he comes from a family of great wealth. And he knows the great want that it creates in his life, but it also becomes what Evdokimov talks about here, a charter of freedom. He's no longer bound by the anxieties, the concerns that he saw in his life, that he saw in his father's life, but he knows a certain kind of freedom to give himself to, to God, to give himself to, to others, to withhold nothing from those in need. So he's not simply giving out of his abundance, but even out of his poverty. And in giving out of his poverty, even, he, he receives an even greater abundance of God's grace in his life. Think of the elderly woman who comes into the temple and she throws in two copper coins for the upkeep of the, of the temple. And so Jesus comes in after teaching in the sun all day and they sit down there and they're simply watching the people come in to give their alms. And then Christ catches sight of this old woman, her last two copper coins she throws in to the kettle. And he rises to his feet and says, that is the love of the kingdom, a love that 
pours itself out completely, withholding nothing. And this is the love that God has shown us, and this is the love that we are to show for others. And so we cannot cling to the things of this world, even our own life, above love and the care of others. Love trumps everything. And it is, again, this lens that must shape the way that we, we view the things of this life. And if we could hold on to that, even in the smallest way, I think it would change the way that we think about money and our use of, use of material goods. And even how, again, how we think of fasting. Fasting, prayer, and almsgiving are tied together. There's a great homily by St. Peter Chrysologus where he talks about this. Uh, and in the Latin rite, it's uh, the, from the Office of Readings for Ash Wednesday. And in the monasteries, what they discovered is that when you fast, it also it deepens your prayer, as we've talked about, because it humbles the body. It involves the whole self in one's prayer life. You're humbling mind and body. But in your fasting, you're consuming less. So instead of preparing nine dishes, for all the monks in the monastery, if you reduce your meal to one a day, maybe there's four dishes. And that gives you an abundance of food to, to then be given to the poor. And so what the monks found is that that abundance that they would find through their fasting allowed them to fulfill that call to almsgiving in a fuller measure. They could take that food into the city and give it to those who are in great need. And again, we, we often don't make that connection in our life uh, because we often hold on to this idea of material security so tightly, uh, whether it's food or money, that we can't let go of our grip of it because if we, we feel that if we do, we will find ourselves lacking and, and in want. And to be honest with you, I think that's true of the spiritual life as a whole. If we give our lives over to God, if we hold nothing back, if we become like these monks where we are now, and if we say to God, God, I give you my heart completely, I withhold nothing back, and we let go of our fear, then what would our life look like? There's a little bit of an anxiety within us that wonders, if I live fully for God, if I embrace the gospel, would I find myself in a position of terrible want, of lack? And that fear can draw us back to cling to the things of this world, and it can break down our faith and our trust in God. So by training ourselves, engaging in this exercise of the faith through poverty, and poverty of spirit. Again, we let go of that ascendancy of the material. We let go of that grip in order that we might take hold more firmly of the grace of God in our life and begin to rely upon it more and more. And the more that we rely upon it, the more powerful the experience of it becomes in our life. We, we begin to lose that fear and anxiety and we begin to experience the presence and the power of God's grace active in our life more and more. Those who live the life out fully are often the most joyful individuals in this world. One needs to think of only Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Even spiritually, throughout 
20, I think it was 20 or 25 years of her life, she was experiencing a profound spiritual dryness, darkness. And yet every person that she engaged, every poor person that she pulled out of the gutter, cleaned and fed and nursed them or took care of them while they were moving towards death, she always did it with this kind of joy of the kingdom an invincible joy and hope in God that could not be taken away from her. So even though on a spiritual level she was experiencing this incredible internal darkness that her prayer was offering her no consolation, she could still manifest this joy of the kingdom to others. And often it takes us tasting that even in the smallest measure, to have faith, faith in enough in it to embrace it in our day-to-day -day life. When we begin to experience something of the invincible joy or the hope or the peace of the kingdom, that desire within our heart for God begins to grow and we begin to move to him more and more fully. So just in conclusion, again, you know, Evdokimov looks at these evangelical councils as a charter to freedom the f freedom to love, a freedom from being bound to the things of this world that keep us from experiencing God or keep us from experiencing others as they are and intimacy with them. I mean, think just maybe as a final example, you know, that sometimes, and I've heard this a lot as a priest over the years, that uh, a, a division will develop between a husband and wife and often a, a kind of isolation begins to develop between the two of them, a gradual movement apart from each other. Uh, so what started out with a deep love, affection, commitment, uh, shifts to the things of this world, and sometimes to career, and to having more things. And so the husband or the wife will spend more and more time at work or in the office and less and less time at home and with the family. And gradually that division estranges them from each other and even leaves them with a kind of resentment towards the other, that this person is holding me back from experiencing the full joy that I could have in life if I were free. And so we, we see what this kind of clinging to the material can do to us in the simplest way in our relationships with each other, not only with God. It can prevent us from experiencing the fullness of love. Okay. With that, maybe we could open up for some comments or questions. Anybody have any thoughts that they would like to, to bring? I know it's a lot to throw at you in one evening. No questions? Okay, won't we close there for the evening? Won't we? Yes? I have one that I struggled with sure. myself to understand what you're saying and mm -hmm. really enjoy the sessions. But when we talk about having material things and love of God and people in the church and becoming one, you know, I kind of grew up not in a fancy household or anything, but right. a good old Byzantine Catholic you know, right. class family. And, and we were taught, or we grew up with the idea that grew up in the church, but we also said as we go out, you got to take care of your family first. Right. Right. And you got to take care of your family. And by the way, you got to take care of this little church over here. Mm -hmm. And you got to do those kind of things. Right. And, and then education comes in. 
So, so there's always a, a mental balance mm -hmm. on saying, hey, what's material and what's good, mm -hmm. and when does it get out of hand and when doesn't it? Right. But, but there is a sense where you need, at least in this country, mm -hmm. you need material things. Like my dad said, you got to take care of your home first and then do charity. Right. And he, whether that's right or not, but that, right. that was his thing. And, and he was a very, you know, very close to the church and everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a balance there from what you were saying mm -hmm. and what we grew up and what we live with. Right. Yeah, I agree, absolutely. But maintaining that balance is the challenging thing for us. We know that part of the fall is that you will provide for yourself now by the sweat of your brow. That work and work in the way that we do, driving, having to drive ourselves, and the anxiety that often goes along with that can be rooted also in our experience of sin. And what we find with Christ is again turning that on its head, especially with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, that it's no longer by the sweat of your brow that you will survive. Now God himself has come to you. He's removed the very thing that's a threat to you. He nourishes you and promises you not only fulfillment in this life, but perfection of life and love and fullness in the kingdom of heaven. And I think, you know, sometimes it's not as difficult as we make it out to be. We have a tendency to make the faith complex and make these questions complex for us when they're actually very simple. And we, we can move from being the church that proclaims the gospel that was very small and was very humble, teachable, and yet very powerful because of the faith, even willing to die for it, to this church that grows very comfortable and is run more and more like a business, a corporation. And then suddenly you have to have more and more to compete with the world in order to engage people, to draw them into the church as if the gospel is not enough. And so we get into this sort of competitive kind of thing, and we're doing all these kind of things within our churches, even the building of churches, which I understand the importance of that, that it's more than just building another building, that there is something that elevates the mind and the heart, the beauty of the iconography, for example, upstairs, and that, that elevates the mind, that draws us to God. But I think more than one project done by especially celibate priests over the course of time has more to do with the sublimation of their energies that are not devoted to marriage to uh, projects. I'm going to build this or this center or create this. And the church can get into that, that it's a kind of corporation that our, our sign of success or the, the fruit of our work is the thing that we create with our hands, what we're doing in the world and that other people see and that is estimated in our own minds as having value. Whereas in the mind of God, in the eyes of God, it might have nothing to do with Christ at all, nothing to do with the gospel, nothing to do with love. It might be the fulfilling and the satisfying of our own ego, our own sense of self-esteem. You know, there is dignity and identity that comes through hard work. And I grew up that, with that too. And my father was one of the hardest working men that I know as well. And, uh, and that was driven by also love for family. But there was an order there for him. You know, he understood the what, why he was doing it. It was for family. It wasn't for himself. 
He was not the climber, in other words, and he could have climbed a lot higher than, than what he did. And I think that happens within the life of the church as well. I remember when uh, Arch Archbishop Bevilacqua was being made Cardinal of Philadelphia, and all the commercials had uh, Archbishop Bevilacqua, Prince of the Church. And every time I saw those commercials, I shuddered. Because is, is that really the image? I, you know, I respect the office and I, I understand it. But is that the image that we are putting forward before the church when our master, our Lord, his throne was the cross and his crown was a crown of thorns and who rolled and conquered not with a sword, but by, by love and by mercy. And anything that sort of smacks of power, of, of authority, of this ascendancy in the world, of you know, making ourselves matter. And you know, believe, as one who's you know, gone to school and studied and things like that too, you know, even priestly training, one of the reasons that they, they grant the degree an MDiv, because it's like MD, the initials, even though the focus is much different. But there is this sense of, you know, what are you training for? You're not training to be these res respected professionals within the world. You're, you're training to serve others, you know, through the life of prayer and being with them at these seminal moments of their life and being the presence of Christ to them. You're not being trained to be an administrator, to hold together, you know, they don't teach you this kind of stuff in the seminary that all of a sudden you're going to have to be a master at economics and you're going to have to know how to plunge toilets and you know, take care of plumbing in your house and you know, know all about roofs and architecture. You know, over my 30 years, I was part of a, a, three building projects, two of them enormous. And I think of all the time and energy that went into that, you, know, you began to wonder, how many individuals, though, are we engaging about Christ? And, you know, we might have everything. I, I mentioned I worked in campus ministry. And you can have this uh, a beautiful center. You could provide everything. You could have all kinds of programming, retreat. But if your heart is not pure, if there isn't this kind of love that is behind the words, you're not going to be speaking to the depths of people's religiosity. You're not going to be speaking to their hearts and their souls. And it's not going to bear any fruit in their life. We have this mass exodus from the church in the West. And you know we should have no questions as to what that's rooted in. And when we see a movement away from this asceticism, especially in something like the life of the priesthood, we see how disastrous it can be. The, the priesthood has been decimated. You know, any dignity that it has went out the window with the scandals that have taken place and just came to light over the last 20 to 25 years. And it's all because we've moved away from the heart of the gospel and from the love of Christ and the ascetic life, which leads us to give our, ourselves over fully to him. When the ego becomes the center and one way or another, it's going to draw us down into greater and greater darkness. And look again, what it did to the priesthood.
So I understand what you're saying. You know, there are realities, but that those realities have to arise, the way that we enter into those realities have to arise out of a pure heart so that we see things again with the eyes of Christ. How does Christ want us to work? How does he want us to love those in our family and care for our, our children? What is really at the heart of that? You know, I know a lot of parents that are far more concerned about getting them into the preschool so they get a jump in education on their education or playing multiple sports, you know, and soccer on Sunday. And as I said, religious education ceases, if you're lucky, at confirmation in the West Sometimes it takes place not at all. And so what value then does providing for them or provide, you know, and providing for ourselves mean if there is no faith that emerges from that at all? If, we be, if we're no different from everybody else in the culture, then w what is the, the meaning of Christianity? I think I said this in the last group, you know, it's never ceased to amaze me when I, I read or chant the gospel and it's something that's uh, jarring, where Christ says, do not resist one who is evil. And then the response to the gospel in the West is, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and you think, well, why, why does that fail to shake us up? Why, why isn't we, is it that we aren't trembling when we hear that word spoken to us? Because something's being said about what our identity is meant to be, what we are to bear witness to in the world, which is this self-emptying love that does not strike back at others, that does not use aggression in the face of aggression, but rather love. This is what the cross teaches us. And I tell you, somebody insults me, <laughs> Double barrel back, you know, so they'll think twice before they, you know, get sarcastic with me again. You know, think about how often we do that in a given day where there is this movement to power, to aggression. Our aggression is to be used, uh, directed towards our sin. The fathers call it the insensitive faculty of the soul. So when some, where we see injustice in the world, or we see sin or temptation come to us, our insensitive faculty, it's sort of what the word says, we are to become incensed at that reality and strike it down. So we see the head of the serpent, we cut it off. We see injustice, we move immediately in love to respond to it. But what takes place when we're formed by the world, we, again, we want to protect ourselves and others but it's, it's rarely shaped and formed by the gospel or what we receive in the Holy Eucharist. To say amen, to receive this self-emptying love should be something, again, that, is, that shakes us to the roots so that when we're walking back to the car after divine liturgy, we're thinking about how we're living our life and how we're engaging those in our, our life. Our, our temptation is to fall into psychological defense, and we have tons of defenses, rationalization being one of them. 
We had a group online the other night from St. John Climacus's Ladder of Divine Ascent, and immediately everybody goes, everybody's mind goes, well, what if the Nazis come to your door and you're hiding Jewish children? Can you lie to them? You know, immediately those defenses go up because we don't want to hear that truth is a person. It's Christ. And that to lie is a sin against charity and it's uh, a sin against faith and against God himself. And so that we should not take it lightly, but immediately our minds move to that defensive position so that we don't have to think about it. And so this is what reading the fathers does. It makes the gospel come alive for us in such a way that it allows it to be unsettling to shake us up a little bit and make us think. There was a movie about Francis of Assisi. It was the, an Italian version. And the very first scene of it, you know how little kids will hang by their legs on a swing and they'll swing back and forth? And so the world is upside down. That was the first scene in this movie. And I thought, that's perfect. Because he captured Francis's life in this one little instant from a child's life. The world was turned upside down for him and suddenly he saw things completely different. And what the reality was is that how he was living was upside down. It was not in accord with how he was created or in accord with God's will. It's only when he allowed his, his life as it was being lived to be flipped over that he began to see the love and the mercy of God for what it really is. And it takes a lot of faith to do that, to allow that to happen. You know, we, we don't like it when we lose the sense of control in our day-to-day our -day life. And that, that's not a critique. You know, I, I struggle with that like anybody else. But, uh, you know, we have to be honest, especially when it comes to living out the faith, or, there, or our churches are going to become a lot more empty. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Besides, come on, Father, hurry up. <laughs> yes. Just last night, people in all Slovakia that the family that prays together stays together. Right. You know, it was proven many, many times. And when you mentioned it, the scene from the Bible, I just had to say this joke. It was told to us as a little kids when uh, they were going to stone the woman. Mm -hmm. And Jesus is saying, you know, whoever is without sin, he can uh, cast the stone and shoot. The stone is dry. He just turns and he says, come on, mom. Mom. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right. That's right. And she wouldn't do it. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I, I know this is a lot, and I appreciate you allowing me to talk to you about it. It's something that is uh, uh, very powerful for me and very important, and so it's good to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. So when we close with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.
Thanks be to God. Thank you.